All right. Uh, so uh, welcome back to uh, another episode of Science of the Southland podcast. Uh, today, I am Jake, your host, uh, without Akshay, who is unable to be with us. But fortunately, uh, we are joined by the esteemed uh, Mr. Clayton Truder uh, in honor of his new book, Loserville. And I'll let him do the rest of his introducing, but uh, we'll be talking to him, uh, getting a sense for his book. And uh, you'll soon find out why it's very relevant to our audience here uh, at, uh, at From the Rumble Seat. Well, thanks for having me, Jake. Esteemed is a really strong word. My name is Clayton Truder. I am a professor at Norwich University in Vermont. I'm a historian. I have a uh, book that just came out. I almost said upcoming. I got so used to saying that. I have a book that's called Loserville, How Professional Sports Remade Atlanta and How Atlanta Remade Professional Sports. It's by the University of Nebraska Press and is available at most of your go-to online book retailers. But if you buy it from the University of Nebraska Press's website, I gather it will get to you much more quickly than some of the bureaucracy happening with other of some of the other online vendors. Clayton, going to be honest. Uh, I, I did try my hardest to get that book and read it on my recent vacation before we actually did this interview. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm very much looking forward to it. I, I think it's been on my radar really since whenever you first, uh, first started putting it out there. Um, definitely been something I've been looking forward to get to for a long time. Well, the minute I got a cover, I started bugging everybody I'd, I'd ever interacted with in my life about 10 times a day. So I apologize for that. No, it's it, it's all good. Um, definitely, definitely great to see it. It uh, obviously, uh, as you say, uh, it's how uh, professional sports remade Atlanta and Atlanta remade professional sports. Uh, I think the obvious question is, why just start writing that book? There's there's so many of, especially in the sports history marketplace, that's been uh, really kind of going under a, a I would say a recent golden age. But why? What drew you to that in particular? Well, I agree it's the golden age. I mean, every year there's about 35 books I want to read. I, I think I get to about five of them and mostly just spend all once feeling bad for what I didn't get to. Um, in, in terms of this topic, about 10 years ago, I was in graduate school and I am a historian of American cities. And I wanted a topic related to that in some respect, partially about the culture, partially about the politics, partially about the business aspect of it. Yeah. What I wanted to write about specifically was the history of pro sports franchise relocations on American cities. And initially, okay. I brought to my advisor the idea of writing about it in a continental sense. What impact does it have on American cities, on Canadian cities, and their interactions with one another? And my advisor very reasonably said that will take you 50 years. Pick a particular city that is emblematic of the shifts you want to talk about. There is no city that shows this more than Atlanta. Atlanta essentially invents the models that cities use in their effort to become major league. Atlanta has no teams in 1965. By 1972, they have teams in the four major professional sports leagues, and they have two gleaming new buildings, with Atlanta Fulton County Stadium and the Omni Coliseum. So that, that, that's how it came about. Atlanta was the, was the perfect example of this. From the time I started my dissertation, defended it, and this book actually came out, and I spent the past year harassing everyone on the world and everyone in the world on Twitter and Facebook. It will be 10 years, so I guess I saved 40 years in the process. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, as somebody who's been uh, middling through the weeds on a, on a tech history book longer than I care to admit at this point, I was like, oh, it'll be done within two years. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, I think it's been two years since, it, since it's been a regular column. But I have to ask, um, you mentioned going from no teams to four teams. Uh, we touched on the, the history book, things like that. Um, I guess, did you come into this, I guess, as, as like 
kind of tying it to a sports fandom or was it more of I'm a history guy and, and you just kind of fell into love or was it kind of more of a marriage of the two? Well, from the time I was about five years old, nothing mattered to me, I guess, other than my mother uh, on the planet more than sports. So um, sports has been a, a major part of my life. Over my, um, I guess it would be left shoulder, is a poster I received from Dean Smith when I was 10 years old. Um, uh, I wrote him a letter saying, I didn't think the Four Corners offense was really a way to run things. And he sent me a kind note back thanking me for um, thanking me for my advice. And he sent me an autographed poster of the team. So I guess he was nice enough about it. I sent a similar one to Bobby Kremens at Georgia Tech roughly yeah. at the same time period. I guess I wrote every coach in the ACC telling them how they're doing their their, their job wrong. Kremens was nice enough to send me an autograph picture too. So I've had a lot of opinions about sports since I was a, I was a very young lad. And I eventually combined my interest in sports with my interest in um, my interest in history, uh, particularly urban history. Nice. I uh, uh, I'm a I'm a Chicago guy myself, so definitely first got into into history via being a sports fan and, and being a Chicago guy. So I I feel that on some level. But you, you've you've alluded to the the writing all the ACC coaches thing. Uh, I know based on our past interactions online and and our previous conversation that you're a BC guy. Are you, so do you come at, for, at it from an ACC sense or, or just kind of, you know, jack of all trades in it? I think a jack of all trades. I mean, I ended up having anything to do with BC simply because they were nice enough to accept me into graduate school and give me some financing for a few years. So when I was there, I embraced BC football and basketball and hockey because it was, you know, like six blocks from where I lived. So I followed all those teams. Some of them were doing well. Others, including the basketball team, which we talked about beforehand, not so great in that time period. But it enabled me to go see all these ACC teams close. So that was a that was a great experience. Delightful. Um, so I, I do want to kind of bring it back to bring it back to the Atlanta thing, being the you know topic of the book, uh, a place near and dear to to our uh, our listeners here. Uh, you kind of got us to to why you got to Atlanta, I guess, uh, in lack of a better sense. Um, so I guess I, I kind of want to bridge off of that. Um, what were those changes that you were seeing uh, and what drew them to you? And can you kind of tee our listeners up for, uh, I guess, what's that hook there, that 1965, if you will? Sure. Atlanta, Atlanta initially is a city that has no pro sports franchises. They have a mayor who they elect back in the fall of 61 named Ivan Allen. Ivan Allen, a tech alum, uh, head of the Chamber of Commerce, one of the most prominent businessmen in the region. Uh, runs for mayor on a platform called Forward Atlanta. Uh, it has six planks about various ways to improve Atlanta and improve its national profile. One of them in particular is called Major League City. He had the idea that if Atlanta wanted to be a significant national city, it needed the amenities that major cities had. And pro sports teams in many ways were foremost among those things he was considering. Um, so he pushed for public financing of stadiums as a way to lure the big leagues to town. He also helps to organize this very uh, corporatized uh, campaign to to lure the big leagues, roll out the red carpet, wine and dine them, have all the political and corporate leaders get, get behind the boosting effort to bring the big leagues to the city. Um, there had certainly been franchise relocations before. There had been cities that had worked to cause particular franchises, such as the Dodgers or the Giants, to relocate to a new city. But there had never been a city that had no pro sports whatsoever that made this concerted public effort to bring all of the big leagues basically simultaneously to town. Um, Atlanta has such a coordinated effort to do this and proves very successful very quickly once the word gets out that they're trying to lure pro sports 
in the same way they would a factory or a branch plant of a large corporation. They take the model they use to become an economic hub to become a pro sports hub. Yeah. Okay. That, that makes sense. Uh, it, it jives with actually, um, in lieu of getting uh, Loserville did just finish up uh, a book that's about 25 years old called uh, Imagineering Atlanta. That kind Wonderful of, book. Wonderful book. Had a big influence on me. Yeah, um, definitely touches uh, pretty hard on, uh, you know, what, what Ivan Allen was doing and thinking. And obviously in our day and age, it's, it's somewhat incomprehensible to, to picture an Atlanta, you know, without the Braves or the Falcons, the Hawks, um, Atlanta United, even in the, in the last five or so years has made a pretty uh, deep mark on the city. Um, but I, I guess before I get into a couple more of my tech specific questions, but I, I don't want you to have to spoil the rest of the sports part of the book or anything like that. But did any of it like obviously we see the sports. Did any else anything else of that work that he was trying to do? I mean, obviously Atlanta's a big city, but um, did was moving Atlanta forward um, something that he was able to do? He was incredibly successful at it. Yeah, I mean his predecessor had been William Hartsfield. He, you know his name is on the airport. He yeah. he's the guy associated with the phrase "the city too busy to hate." In many ways, Allen in many ways Allen is building a coalition on top of the coalition that uh, Hartsfield had. I mean, Atlanta is the most progressive city in the South, and that plays no small role in why it became the major economic center of the region. Northern cities were not embarrassed uh, to invest their relatives to, say, Birmingham or Charlotte or New Orleans or Memphis, based on what's going on in the city. Yeah. Uh, once some of the voting laws change in Georgia in the 1940s, you have a, a political coalition which combines almost the entirety of the newly expanded black electorate with the white professional class, business class become the core governing coalition in the city that supports Hartsfield, later supports Allen uh, as mayor. So yeah. this, this, this is the base for what for what he puts in place. In terms of Allen's different planks, um, building the downtown connector was a major aspect of it. He's focused on transportation. That certainly yeah. certainly is out there. Um, he's focused on public transportation. That has a, they eventually got Marta in under his successor, uh, Sam Massel. That has a bit of a mixed record. Um, he is working on desegregating public institutions. That certainly succeeded. Atlanta yeah. and the other southern southern cities required um, federal intervention to make that happen. Atlanta did it on its own. I mean, it's unquestionably Atlanta was was far on ahead of uh, all of its other peer cities in the region in terms of that. In yeah. terms of the other planks uh, on on the platform, they were largely infrastructural kind of things, and uh, they were very successful at this. Atlanta is also working on on more broadly trying to lure more investment into the city, something Atlanta had really been very good at since the 1890s. I don't know a city that was better at self-promotion, hyping itself than Atlanta was early from that time, even from the days of Henry Grady in the 1890s onward. Uh, Ivan Allen's father, uh, Ivan Allen Sr., uh, who started the family business back in the 1920s, ran a separate Forward Atlanta campaign aimed at uh, luring uh, investors from around the country to Atlanta to enjoy its business-friendly climate. In many ways, his son is building off what uh, his father, uh, the son is building off what the father had done in an earlier generation. So I would say Ivan Allen was incredibly successful in, in most respects as a mayor, uh, including in this big league sense. Um, part of the story of the book, though, is about how it proves tougher to build durable support for these teams and also for them to succeed on the field than initially anticipated. I don't really blame Allen or the city leadership for this, Nobody had really tried this before. They were completely pioneers as an expansion city. If you look at San Diego or Houston or Phoenix or Jacksonville or Charlotte, uh, they completely modeled their approach to becoming major league after what Atlanta did in the 1960s. 
Atlanta went out there, they grabbed for the brass ring, and they succeeded at this. It didn't necessarily turn out as expected, at least initially, but um, I, I think it's hard not to uh, not to admire their bravado and uh, uh, sense of uh, self-motivation. Yeah, I, I think that last point, I, I could branch off basically anywhere in that, in that and ask a, a bevy of questions, but uh, at least speaking from my own experience, right? Uh, I mean, everyone who's tuning into this can probably relate to this on some level of being a sports fan growing up with that. But like, I'm a transplant to Atlanta. Seems like a lot of people I know in Atlanta, uh, even the, a generation or, or two generations in front of me were at some point or, or um, even still consider themselves to be generally transplants to the city. I personally will never give up the Cubs. And I got, I guess it's hard for the Braves to then granted. I, I do love going to games in general, but it, it's hard to market to someone like that. Right. Like I'm, I'm going to go to a Hawks game when the bulls are in town. Like that's just who I am. And it's going to be limited in that sense too. Yeah, that was a major problem. And, and the transplant thing, I think, works in two different ways. There's the aspect of having northern transplants from, from Chicago or Detroit or New York or Philly or where, wherever who retain loyalties to their to their teams from their original hometowns. That's an issue. I think a second issue that was a little bit more, I guess, silent was the degree to which southern transplants end up in Atlanta. It's the economic hub of the region. And people, whether it's college football, whether it's other activities, retain the loyalties those particular areas as much as they did people from uh, who came who came from the north to Atlanta. So that's the major issue with the sporting culture in Atlanta historically too. I think people either retain these loyalties or they view the teams less as some local institution that you should be automatically loyal to uh, and view them more as a consumer product, as any other consumer product, as any other way to spend your limited discretionary income and your limited amount of free time on. Yeah. Um, in- in terms of Atlanta locals, historically, I think a problem was just because there are all of a sudden teams with Atlanta across your chest doesn't mean that this will automatically become the, for- the focus of your, um, of your, of your free time. Um, obviously, college football with Georgia Tech and, and, and really Georgia, one aspect of the story I think people underestimate is Georgia's football program, really, it's the 60s when they begin to become in any way a peer of Georgia Tech. I mean, Georgia Tech is really the, the, in many ways, the original college football program in terms of having the pageantry of Saturday. I mean, there is such a theater around Georgia Tech football from the early 20th century onward. Uh, it, it's, it's a remarkable thing that it is the centerpiece of the fall social calendar for, for much of the educated class in Atlanta. Um, and it certainly remains that to, to a great extent, but it's something that begins at the very early 20th century. I mean, it's like along with like the Piedmont Driving Club and all these other aspects of, 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 the, of the city's culture that go back. I mean, if you look at the city's elite, it's a bunch of tech alums historically in this time. I mean, it's, it's not just Alan; it's it's the, all the all the guys surrounding him too are largely uh, tech guys. There's a, there's a few you know a handful of Emory people, but it's mostly mostly tech grads who are who are who are in this position. Um, so yeah. yeah, I mean, not and it's not just college football, stock car racing, boating, golfing, um, professional wrestling had a wildly popular fan base in Atlanta. They frequently outdrew the Hawks playing a mile away at the Omni uh, in this time period. So people didn't simply give up on what interested them just because there were Atlanta teams. Yeah. Um, and, and again, another one of those questions, I could go eight different ways from that. Obviously um, it, you touched on one of the things I think we touch on a lot here in, in terms of our podcast, when we talk about some of these bigger forces driving tech in particular um, that tech, you know, is in the center of that they're building expansions to the stadium to, 
you know, let, let more of those people in. There are people who covet these season tickets that can't get any of them. Um, and, and I think, uh, especially if you're, if you're going to, to chart the, the divergence kind of in a tech sense and in an Atlanta sense, um, it's almost poetic that the decision to leave the SEC lines up with being two years before, um, before the Braves and the, and the Falcons come to town with, with those being the primary fall, fall competitors, at, at least in, in my opinion. Without question. Actually, Bobby Dodd, when there was talk of the big leagues coming to Atlanta, he yeah. was much more concerned about the Braves than he was the Falcons. He was basically like, the Falcons, that'll be the third football day of the weekend. It's Friday night, there's us. Sunday will be an after effect. The problem is for 10 months of the year, the Braves will be in the sporting section all the time. They will steal coverage, the year-long coverage there is of us in, uh, in the sporting section. I mean, yeah. in, terms of, in terms of the sporting section in, for the Atlanta papers, it's tough to overestimate the degree to which college football even then was the centerpiece of it. There was a time when the Journal and Constitution had a fall beat writer for every SEC and ACC program. Think about this. There's a person whose full-time job was to cover Wake Forest football uh, in the, uh, in, at, the, at the Atlanta Constitution in this time period. It's, 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 it's wild to think of. In the 1960s, if you, if you had somebody in family died who had tech season tickets, don't mention that they were a tech alum in the obituaries because all of a sudden people are going to be calling you up saying, you got some tickets? You know, you're yeah. grieving and you got all these phone calls. I mean, it's, it's, it's tough to overestimate what a big deal that was. Um, and that's certainly something the Falcons weren't experiencing when they got yeah. to town. Yeah, def- definitely, um, definitely aligns how you say. I, I go to a, a church that is very interestingly a Georgia Tech church, if that makes sense. It's uh, a place where a lot of former uh, assistant coaches would go back in the day, Bobby Dodd himself. Um, so getting to talk to some of them about those experiences, it's something maybe you don't really appreciate if you're a current tech student or fan, you know, you see um, that, you know, it, it's it's still a, a team that'll sell out a game or two every year. But in terms of being the, uh, I guess, transcendent phenomenon that it was uh, in terms of, you know, drawing Emory folks, uh, Agnes Scott, uh, even um, sending sending a lot of students to games um, just doesn't <laughs> it's it, that's not really what life's like anymore, right? Um, one, it was the focal point of Atlanta sports for more than half a century, without question. Yeah, um, and, and I think that the move out of the SEC again, not to to write too much of my own uh, commentary. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't agree more. I agree entirely. Yes. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, the trying to go national with it is is maybe the right move at the time or seemed good in the short term, but it, it's very interesting to see how it's played out longer term from that. One thing I don't want to get too far away from uh, before, you know, uh, I forget to ask it and whatnot is the concept of the intermigration within the South. Um, you're an urban historian. Um, you, you said that's one of those things. And, you know, it's a phenomenon we saw all over the U S people moving from rural areas to the mm-hmm. cities um, to be quite frank. I don't think that's something that we at the site, uh, Akshay and myself on the podcast, have ever really, really touched on, right? And and I think you can kind of trace some of that. I, I think it's Tom Cousins and his connections to the SEC uh, in terms of um, still being really involved with with that. Obviously, he was you know a, a pro sports owner, so there's there's some difference there in terms of his investment. But in terms of the average fan. Um, is there anything in particular that you think is is worth unboxing more there? Because uh, it's it's an idea that sounds great to me, but honestly, this is the first time I've ever I've ever really thought about that. 
Well, I think in many ways it ends up being the hub of fandom for almost every SEC team because you have a big base of fans for every single club because these are, you know, particularly in the South in the 60s and 70s, the percentage of people who are college graduates was relatively low to a lot of other parts of the country. If you're looking for a good paying job, you're probably going to end up in Atlanta before a lot of the other cities really develop in this in the, in the same way. So there were tons of Tennessee fans and Mississippi fans and fans of any team you could think of in the SEC, and they had very strong bases in town. And there were plenty of people who were, were returning back to the campus where they studied on several fall weekends to go to go support their teams. So there's always a lot of movement in and out of, of Atlanta during this time period. And, and to, this, to this day, that's the case. I mean, part of the reason is it's such a great transportation hub uh, in, in many respects. Yeah. Um, one thing that kind of just clicked into my head as you, as you were talking about that, um, there's almost a level of, of irony to that increasing urbanization with tech, you know, the, the team of Atlanta in, in 1960, 1964, 66, whichever year you want to peg to it, um, saying, hey, we don't need the SEC anymore, goodbye. And you look at kind of their reality being in the ACC and having, um, you know, every other year, Pitt is coming to town. Every six years, you have BC or Syracuse, um, UVA every other year. Uh, and, and, you know, as you get further south, there's more and more local fans. We see great turnout for UNC, Clemson, FSU. But uh, there's almost a level of, of irony that, you know, even if you're not having the best year, you know, if you're seeing Tennessee, South Carolina, UGA, Florida, Auburn on your schedule, that's looking a lot different in terms of filling the stadium, if that's your main concern there. Very much so. I, I view the current ACC as a bit of an abomination. I don't think it really made sense for BC and Syracuse and those types to go there. First of all, it gutted the Big East Basketball Conference, which I think is, I mean, uh, breaks my heart to even think of. And I, and I think college sports is so, is so wrapped around tradition and, and the, the gutting of these uh, local rivalries to create these, these, these um, polyglot uh, conferences of teams that really have nothing in common with each other has may, may have worked financially, but I think in the long run has made everybody weaker as a result. And I think in some ways contributes to the dominance of the SEC. You have such a core of these handful of teams that are so powerful every single year that it, that it makes it difficult for these other leagues, I guess, to, to, to build around a certain set of contenders, it seems, because they don't play each other reg regularly enough. I mean, it's, it's very, you know, when BC came down and played at Georgia Tech this year, I mean, it was a pretty empty stadium, is my recollection. Mm -hmm. watching, I didn't go, but watching yeah. on television, it was, you know, I think yeah. it's unfortunate for both teams. I mean, it would have been much better if BC was playing, you know, playing UConn that weekend and if Georgia Tech was playing uh, playing a team that was uh, nearby to them as well, I think, in terms of, I mean, building regional appeal. Yeah, I, uh, you're, you're, you're talking to a born and bred, not only uh, DePaul basketball fan, my, my mom did, did go there in addition to Indiana, but a Missouri Valley basketball guy. Uh, and it, it is... It is something that I think about not infrequently, obviously, with the tech connection and thinking about, you know, um, tech before uh, late 80s had played Tennessee probably three dozen times more than UGA had ever played them. And now you see that as something that registers on 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 the conscience as being a, a major rivalry. Right. And that just shows how yes. the last 30 years have shifted, but also something where you get into things like basketball, baseball, these more hyper regionalized uh, concepts in, in college where, you know, you know, uh, Crichton's not playing Northern Iowa. That is, that's a, a, a bummer, frankly, or, you know, obviously as a Bradley guy, my dad's a Bradley guy, you see, um, you lack things there. And, and even as, uh, as time goes on, it doesn't seem like that is 
that is ceasing. Obviously, we, we we see the same thing in terms of in terms of Texas and Oklahoma leaving their their traditional rivals as well. So. I mean, just the the I mean, I, from a basketball sense, the gutting of both the ACC tournament and the Big East tournament into something that's not quite either of them is I, I find it very difficult to watch. And it's like a game show. I never know exactly who gets to be in what little sub bracket and they have to beat somebody to play somebody else. I mean, it used to be pretty, um, pretty clear how the whole thing worked. It was, it was, you know, three, three, four days worked out pretty nicely, but now it's uh, every year. I feel like I have to, I have to go look at how the bracket works to figure out who's going to play whom. And I guess whom BC will lose to in the uh, opening round. But uh, I, I feel that on a deep spiritual level right there, but I, and that's ironic to say, considering we won it last year, but that uh, that's yeah. probably the topic of a, of a whole different podcast episode there. But um, uh, in terms of, uh, other, other concepts, um, I, I do want to make sure I get in Akshay's two questions. Um, but, uh, if, if just in terms of other changes, obviously we talked about the SEC and that departure and, and how, you know, obviously the, the sociological changes that have come with that as well. But, uh, if there were just any other changes tech specific or not, um, that, that occurred to affect uh, Georgia Tech and it, why they may have hit hard or, or maybe fallen flat, if so? Well, I would say Tech, the story of Tech is very much the undercurrent of this whole book because it's one of the major institutions in the city and I guess gives a source of continuity to everything that's going on. I mean, the story of pro sports in Atlanta, um, in many ways, tech rela- Tech's relationship would end up shaping a lot of things. Like when the NFL initially comes to town, they're like, let's play at Grant Field. Georgia Tech says, no way, we're yep. Georgia Tech. Stay away from your crummy pro football that people have only started caring about like two years ago when Johnny yeah. Unitas had an overtime victory against the Giants. And, the you know, we are the centerpiece of football. Leave us alone. So Tech just put pushed pro football aside uh, as, as much as possible and, and felt no reason to, uh, to, to stay connected to it and really played a significant role in keeping pro football out of town for several years, just their aloofness toward it. Um, in terms of the NBA coming to town, it's largely the result of uh, Georgia Tech. I mean, Georgia Tech agreed to allow the Hawks to play at uh, Alexander Memorial Coliseum for four years in advance of the building of the Omni. Uh, it largely has to do with uh, Carl Sanders, um, the former governor, was one of the owners, uh, prospective owners of the new Hawks franchise, along with Tom Cousins. Um, he's more there, I guess I would say Sanders was more there in a titular fashion. He was kind of a, a prominent figurehead in the city. And because tech relied to some extent on state um, state money to function, uh, Sanders was looking to run again for governor. Um, uh, and uh, I guess tech figured it was a better thing to do to let them play there than to uh, than to anger Sanders, who was looked like the obvious choice to become governor again. It, it, it certainly didn't happen. It ends up being uh, when Jimmy Carter becomes the governor. But uh, he was such a prominent and powerful man, still a fairly young political leader that uh, the the tech leadership agrees to allow um, the NBA to play there. It proves a difficult situation. There's a lack of parking for the the arena, um, and there was proved to be a lack of interest in pro basketball in the early years in the city as well. So it was a very tough situation playing there, but at least it provided a springboard to the NBA for for the city of Atlanta. Yeah, um, definitely definitely could go – on another hour-long dealio about uh, state funding and the plays of politics in there. So that definitely definitely jives with some past uh, preconceptions. Oh, also, lots of Pepper Rogers. He's such a fascinating character during his tenure yeah. coaching the team. Lots yeah. of 
Pepper Rogers content there that even if the team didn't become exactly a powerhouse again, he was certainly interesting and brought a lot of people back into tech football after after several rough years in the late 60s and early 70s. Yeah. And I think it actually proves to be an issue that the that the Falcons face. His show, the Pepper Rogers show, was so popular on local television. Um, there'd be times it was playing on Sunday afternoon against the Falcons, and the Falcons would be a little concerned about how well his show was drawing, in part because he'd been out in L.A. and got to know a lot of celebrities and would bring on Burt Reynolds and, and uh, Sally Field and people like that onto his show. Uh, it got like 10 times better rating than the week than the Falcons weekly television show showing their clips. Yeah. Um, so and that's not only because of tech support, but also because he was such a character, too. That sounds almost like what people hoped the Jeff Collins experience would become in terms of the the magnet personality uh, brand, I guess, draw. Um, well, he certainly uh, likes branding. I mean, he, yeah, he does. <laughs> There's a. Uh, you know, it. We'll we'll let that one lie. Uh, I think. Sure, of course. Uh, yes, I will. The, the there's. You've got to see how it plays out on the field another year. At least, at least that's what I tell myself. Absolutely, I I I feel I feel exactly the same way. But yeah. I do it. I I do admire his sense of uh, swagger and self promotion, though. I think I think that's an important thing, especially in 2022 for a football program. But it's only if the product was a little better. Let's let's hope for next year, but. Yeah, for sure. Um, the uh, the one thing I was going to follow up to that was um, kind of on the tip of my tongue, uh, but I think I can kind of sum it up with, it, it sounds like Georgia Tech, in terms of the decisions that they made uh, in respect to these pro franchises and the attitudes that they had at the time, um, not that it's a 1920s attitude, but just uh, ever so much is a little bit outdated and a little bit short-sighted of, you know, these split revenues that bulls were going to have or um, the, the power of pro football, right? Um, in And kind of contrast, interestingly, kind of opening up the field here a little bit wider to uh, kind of how Tulane interacted with the Saints, it comes to mind, and how Minnesota uh, mm-hmm. interacted with the Vikings. Um, and it, it's also a little bit telling to kind of see how uh, how those two programs fared, uh, kind of Obviously, Minnesota is still a Big Ten team, but uh, with them being second fiddle in the Metrodome for 30, 40 years uh, to the Vikings, as well as uh, Tulane in a similar boat, kind of leaving the SEC mm-hmm. and uh, going all in uh, with the Saints in terms of the Superdome. I, I think it's a very tough situation for a lot of schools to, 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 to think forward the impact of their relationship to pro sports on them. I mean, certainly this is the case with Georgia Tech that you look back and say, why would they have done some of these things? They're on top of the heap. Why would you? Why would you? Um, you know, why would you choose to to alter that situation unless it's entirely necessary? So I, my inclination is to give Edwin Harrison and the leadership in that time period a bit of a pass on some of their relationship to it. I mean, I would say compared to say like Holy Cross in the late seventies when they decide not to join the Big East, I think yeah. that was a much bigger uh, uh, deficit. It ended up leading going from being a really big time college basketball program to you know, kind of just a team in the Patriot League. So it's yeah. certainly not the only program to do this. I mean, in Georgia Tech, in spite of everything, still has mystique, I would say, in the top 10, 15 in the history of college football. I mean, they have such a unique program history. I mean, there aren't a lot of, there aren't a lot of uh, schools with their coach's name on the biggest trophy in sports. I mean, it's, it's tough to beat that. Well, the one thing uh, that we kind of hang our hat on or is kind of like, a, I guess, a, a trope or a meme of our podcast is the, the best player uh gets the Heisman right mm-hmm. uh the best coach gets the Dodd the best mm-hmm. 
athletic director gets the Homer Rice Award, uh, and the top assistant mm-hmm. gets Frank Broyles. Uh, and and all of those either have uh, extremely indelible tech legacies. Obviously, Heisman uh, winning his championship here, 20, uh, 222 to nothing. Uh, those things are, are very well known. Um, but the, the way Homer Rice shaped being an athletic director and, and Broyles as well. Um, uh, I mean, obviously, the, the book's about pro sports shaping and reshaping Atlanta. Uh, but but tech definitely kind of had that. Uh, seems like they shaped the pro sports that were shaping Atlanta uh, at the same time. I mean, none, I mean, even just looking at broader legacy, there's no way a major bowl game is in Atlanta without Georgia Tech there. There's no way the Hall of Fame is in Georgia without Georgia Tech there. I mean, it is it is tough to for, for people who are not associated with Tech. I think it's very tough to explain to them how significant and central they are to the telling of the story of college football. There's relatively few programs where you, that are absolutely necessary to tell the story. And Tech is among them. Yeah, um, I. I I'm a little bit biased, but I, I would tend to agree. Um, I do have a couple odds and ends I wanted to ask, um, mm-hmm. just to, to kind of flavor flavor the rest of it. One, uh, did you watch the John Boy seven-parter uh, on the history of the Falcons that came out recently? Loved it, fantastic, absolutely. I mean, I enjoyed every enjoyed every piece of it. I mean, it's in a little bit that he's more focused on more recent times, but yeah. I learned a lot of things from it. And I, I, if people haven't gotten a chance to watch it, like everything he does, it's 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 superb cool. and very funny. Too. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I didn't know if, uh, if I, I mean, obviously it, it folds well, but if, uh, if you thought it, uh, lined up with the story you were trying to tell, I, I, it kind of is what got me more into the, the history of the Falcons and looking forward to your book. So definitely was interested, uh, in hearing your thoughts on that. Um, if you had a favorite, like sports history, history, um, book or author, or a, a couple recommendations that you might think go, maybe go well with your book or, or have people trying to tell similar stories, uh, would love to hear those as well. Well, I, I'm very focused on the idea that this is the story of a city and its teams and to try to tell the story of the city in full. Um, okay. a, book, a book that had a big influence on my approach to this is a guy named Jonathan Mahler wrote a book called The Bronx is Burning. It later became a mini series on ESPN, and it's very focused on telling the story of New York in the 70s while also telling the story of the Yankees during this time period. My book covers all the different teams and goes in, in depth about all of their um, and about all the history of the different franchises, as well as going into college sports and other regional passions. My book is also quite a bit longer, um, but uh, but but uh, that book had a profound influence on what I'm doing and is certainly one of my uh, favorite sports books. Um, love Jeff Perlman's books. Um, I mean, I, I think anyone looks at a list of the classics of pro sports books. If you're not familiar with them, go check them out. Uh, Michael McCambridge's The America uh, America's Game. But the history of pro football is just a fantastic book. Um, um, in terms of other Atlanta stuff, Dan Schlossberg has written some fine books about the Braves. Um, there's, yeah, I mean, there's there's no end to fantastic. Uh, John Eisenberg's uh, The League is a great NFL history, yes. too. People yes. want to check that out. Absolutely. Uh, I read that about a year ago and, and absolutely loved that one. Not to not to cut you off. I, I, I did. No, he was one of, one of the great honors of, is having a blurb from him on the back of my book is, is a real pleasure. That's awesome. Um, for those of uh, our listeners who are not familiar, um, one name that I uh, throw out as somebody being influential to myself is Texone John Smith. Uh, he and Randy Roberts uh, write a bunch about uh, uh, local uh, local stuff, sports stuff on a bigger scale. Um, that's somebody I've oh, read. Sons of Westwood, favorite books, had, had a big influence on me as well. He's a great writer and researcher. And yeah. it sounds like he's a great professor too. Uh, 
if, if you're listening to this and you're still a tech student, uh, my favorite professor that I had at tech, uh, well, well worth uh, the three credits on that. Um, one thing I did uh, want to get in before, uh, before we uh, wrapped up was uh, just if you had uh, any, anything I didn't touch on, anything you'd want to tell tech folks or ask me or, or anything like that, uh, floor is yours. I'd like, just like to say, if anything else, this is not simply an Atlanta story. I see it as being a story about the history of pro sports in, in the late 20th century. I regard this as an origin story, and I think Atlanta is really ground zero for the making of the modern sports business by creating this model for expansion cities to become major league by having campaigns to encourage teams to come to town and also publicly finance stadiums. It creates almost an arms race among cities for control of franchises. If you are in New York or Chicago or Cleveland or any existing pro sports town, suddenly you have to have public financing for your stadium too to compete with cities like Atlanta that have brought this new approach into it. Yeah, very fair. Um, that's uh, always great to think about. Um, again, the book, uh, Loserville, uh, it's out. Uh, go buy it. Um, you know, go read it. Uh, we will be doing some sort of review once I get the chance. Uh, it was great to have you though, uh, Clayton, uh, look forward to seeing what else you'll be up to. And, uh, uh, you're always welcome back here. Uh, especially if you want to talk history on, uh, of the Southland. Oh, I'd love to at any time. Thanks Jake for so much for having me on. Yeah, no problem. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs>